join me in prayer. Father, today, that is our humble and simple prayer uh, that you would meet us here. And Father, today, I pray that as we look to your word, that you would show us your heart and what you would have us to see. And so, Father, we pray that uh, your spirit would be our teacher today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are new this morning, 2019 is a year that we have set aside uh, to look at the Bible in its entirety from 30,000 foot feet to see the big story, God's story of redemption. I want you to know this morning that the story that is recorded in the Bible, 66 books written, oh my, over 2,000 years or so. Uh, it is not only God's story, but God is the author of that story. Uh, the scripture tells us that uh, God's Spirit moved on the Holy, the Holy Spirit moved on holy men of God, and they wrote as God inspired them. And so, even though there are a number of human authors of God's story contained in the 66 books, God is the author of this story. This is God's story. This is what God wanted us to know about the story of redemption. The Bible encompasses 4,100 years of human history. And so from creation through the first century, when the last book was written, the book of Revelation, 4,100 years. And in the midst of all of the details of those 4,100 years, there is one day that is given more attention in detail than any other day. Now just think about that. 4,100 years, there's a lot of details, a lot of stories, a lot of characters. But if you just calculated the number of verses that are given to each day, by far there is one day that is given more attention and more detail than any other day. In fact, just when you think about that alone, you realize that it is a day that must have great significance. We come to that day today. And it is the day that Jesus died. The day of Jesus' death is given more space in the scripture than any other day in all of that 4,100 years. All four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give about two chapters to that day. And when I talk about that day, I'm, I'm talking about from midnight to sundown. It's not even actually 24 hours that I'm talking about. From midnight to 
7 p.m., we might say. In fact, we know the date. That may surprise you. <laughs> it was April 7th, 30 A.D. I had to look it up. I didn't know. Google's a great thing. Some of it's right. April 7th, 30 A.D., the Friday that Jesus died. The day actually started in the Garden of Gethsemane that night. And uh, you can see this on your sheets. Uh, I'm going to give you some uh, generalized times. If you were asking me, they would have had the Passover meal. And at some point that night, we're just going to pick midnight. Jesus would have left where they were gathered south of the Temple Mount. And they would have walked across the, the Kidron Valley and on the upslope of the Mount of Olives, east of uh, where the temple was, is, is the Mount of Olives. And just up that hillside, there is a grove or a garden of olive trees. It is called the Garden of Gethsemane. It was a place, according to the Gospel writers, that Jesus frequented. <laughs> I want to remind you that uh, Jesus could have picked a spot where Judas could not have found him. But one of the gospel writers said that Judas knew that's where Jesus was most likely going to go to. And that's where Jesus went, even though his betrayer had gone, had left the upper room to go to get the authorities to arrest Jesus. Um, you know I have pictures this morning. The Garden of Gethsemane. It, uh, I, I thought it was maybe one of the most moving places we visited in our trip. Um, that's an olive tree. I don't know if that's what you envisioned, envisioned an olive tree. There are two ancient olive trees in that garden, and it's enclosed. You can't go in there, but uh, some of these, two of these trees could date back to the time of Jesus' time because you just see they like grow to be gnarly. I don't know what else. I mean, just like, ah. I don't know what that is, but yeah, they just kind of like grow in different ways. It's not like a straight line. We're growing up high. They just kind of grow out and things just kind of pop out. I don't know what it is, but this tree and another one is actually possibly from the time of Jesus' time. And the significance of the Garden of Gethsemane is, was it was a place that Jesus went to pray, but the significance of why he went there, I think is partly because not only was it an olive grove, but it was a place where they took the olives and they pressed them into olive oil. In fact, uh, the word, the name Gethsemane means an olive press. It was where those olives were crushed. In fact, we saw several of these. It would, I don't know if they, I don't know if it's, I don't know how they first started. I don't know if they stomped on them with their feet. I ought to know that. I don't know. Like I don't think it's like grapes in in Italy, but they begin to crush these things, and then finally there's a stone that just pulverizes. And you realize that when Jesus went there, the the name Gethsemane means that which is crushed, pressed, 
to its very end and that the olive oil comes out of. And in the experience of the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was agonizing in prayer. And I think that's the best word we could use. He went there to pray. And in fact, in Luke 22, 44, it says, it uses that word agony. It says, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. You begin to get the sense of the pressure that is building in Jesus' mind and in his heart. Uh, probably from midnight to 3 a.m., we know that he, he, he takes the 11 there, Judas is left, and then he takes what is called a stone's throw. He takes three of the other disciples, John, James, and Peter, and he goes further and he asks them to pray with him, and they fall asleep. Jesus comes back. Could you not pray one hour? We don't know how much time passed, but Jesus is praying. They heard this. They recorded in the Gospels. Father, if it's possible that this cup of the suffering and death that I'm about to experience can pass from me, Lord, may it, may it pass. But if not, your will be done. And he prays this apparently over and over. And obviously at the end of that time, he knows that he must, uh, he must go to the cross. This is what the God, God the Father, had planned for him. The disciples sleep. Judas finally comes with a mob of armed men. And he betrays him with a kiss. There's more detail to that story. I think that maybe the coolest part of the story is at some point we learn from John's gospel that Peter takes a sword. Peter, oh. Peter, he takes a sword and one gospel gives the name of the high priest servant Malchus. I think he probably came to faith because not only does Peter take part of his ear off and Jesus then reaches up and heals it. Uh, I mean, that's pretty impressive. And then he tells Peter, put your sword away. Jesus does not try to get away, but he allows this mob of armed men to come and arrest him. And the gospels say in the Garden of Gethsemane, from midnight to three, our first stop this morning, the disciples, the eleven flee. And Jesus is arrested. He is bound and he is taken to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest. Um, I put the time frame here. Maybe it's, it's going back across the, the Kidron Valley and up the hill south of the Temple Mount to where the high priest's home, Caiaphas, was. Uh, there's a church there today. They've excavated it. They know where it was. Uh, and there he's interrogated first by uh, the former high priest Annas and then Caiaphas, the current high priest. Witnesses are brought in. Uh, they testify. Their, their testimony does not agree. You have to get this is from 3.30 till maybe daylight. We know that John, according to his account, goes. We know that Peter, by all the gospel accounts, goes. And he stands outside in, in the courtyard around a fire, staying warm with some other people. In the midst of the interrogation, Jesus does not defend himself. Uh, we know in the midst of the interrogation of those three hours that Peter denies Jesus, just as Jesus had told him, three times before the cock crows in the morning. And so we know it was, was morning time about then. Uh, in, in Mark chapter 14, 
65, Mark 14, 65, it says of this location, the house of Caiaphas, uh, that what happened there, uh, it says, some began, then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and to say to him, prophesy. And the officer struck him with the palms of our hand. And so I'm telling you, Jesus has agonized in prayer in the garden for several hours. He has been brought in and he has uh, been roughed up by the mob, the thugs. One of the other things that was we found when we went to Caiaphas's house is there is a pit there. There is a pit, and even though the gospel writers do not speak to this, actually the prophecies of Psalms speak to this, and there is this pit, uh, and it, can I, yeah, let's show the picture. And I know this, you can't really see this, but it's kind of guarded, but it is very likely that Jesus was lowered into this pit, and we, we later walked down the steps and we read from Psalm 68, as I remember, of uh, the prophecy of the, of the Messiah's death and how he would be in a pit. And uh, I don't know, it was, it was pretty uh, unbelievable to stand there and know that probably when Jesus was first brought in and they were gathering that they, he would have been lowered down in this pit as a holding cell and then he would have been drawn back up out of that to be put on trial. But by morning... At the house of Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, the council of 70 religious leaders, condemns Jesus to death. And they take him bound to the Romans, to the Ro Roman Praetorium, which is also called the, the Tower of Antonio. It's on the other side of the Temple Mount. Uh, and I put the time from 7 a.m. to 8.30. There's a number of things that happen in this time, but the religious leaders bring him to Pilate, who is the governor of Judea, and there they accuse him of all these things. Pilate interrogates him. He even takes him to, to Herod, who is in town. Herod is the, the ruler, uh, the Roman ruler over Galilee, where Jesus did most of his ministry. And so Pilate includes him in that, according to Luke's account. They both interrogate him. Jesus does not defend himself. Uh, there's a few things that are recorded that he said. Uh, and Pilate and Herod, it seems that their desire is that he has nothing, no reason that he should be crucified. They want to declare him innocent. But the religious leaders incite the crowds to begin to yell for his crucifixion. Uh, Pilate tries to release him. But the crowd calls for a man by the name of Barabbas, and he is released. And finally, Pilate washes his hands, and he says, that is your decision. He will be crucified. And Jesus is condemned to be crucified. The, the, the Roman soldiers at this point scourge Jesus. In fact, in, in John chapter 19, uh, in John's account, it says, so then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. And they put on him a purple robe. And they said, hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Um, there is a spot, there is a stone. When they excavated this, this location, uh, obviously it's under glass now, uh, where the Roman soldiers, and we have reason to believe that this would have been where Jesus was taken and he was scourged, 
He was tied to a pole and he was whipped 39 lashes with a whip that had bone and other things in it that would have tore his back open. How many of y'all saw The Passion of the Christ, the movie? It was brutal. The Romans were professional executioners and they would have beat Jesus within an inch of his life to then take him out to crucify him. Then Jesus was let out. There is a path, there is a road in Jerusalem that in the years to come that the religious community called the Via Dolorosa, which means the way of suffering. And I put down on your sheet that maybe from 8.30 till 9, they lead Jesus from the, pra the Roman praetorium to the place outside the city uh, to where they will crucify him. And he walks on the Via Dolorosa. Um, you know I have a picture. There's a lot of pictures, but this is the start. This is coming out of the place where the Roman Praetorium is, and uh, this is the start. He would have been led out of the city. There are two traditional sites for the crucifixion and uh, the tomb, and we're not sure of the path, but it's almost certain that this would have been the start of the path that Jesus would have taken. In Luke 23, verse 26, um, it says, Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. We don't know if Simon started with the cross or if Jesus started with the cross, but at some point, I think we could surmise that Jesus was not able to carry the cross I don't, maybe the Via del Rio, I don't know, maybe it's a mile. I don't, I don't know how long it is. But the thing that struck me was the streets are very narrow, and it says that there were throngs of people that gathered there, and some of the people, yes, were women, but there were also other people that walked along with Jesus on the way of suffering. We know there were two other men that were crucified that day. The scripture says that Jesus was crucified at a place called Golgotha, from 9 a.m. to 3 in the afternoon. It is also called Calvary, I believe in Luke's account. Um, I believe the name from Golgotha, which would have been an Aramaic name, uh, was the place of the skull. I don't have a picture of it this morning. You'll have to talk to me later about that. Or even better, in two summers, go with me to the Holy Lands and I'll tell you what I think. Um, but it was there at Calvary, at Golgotha, the place of the skull, that they crucified Jesus. It has always struck me how succinct the scripture is about the crucifixion of Jesus. Because it says in Luke 23, 33, And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him. And then it says, and, and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. 
They would have taken the hands of Jesus, we know. I'm not sure about the feet. But the hands of Jesus would have been nailed to that cross beam. And he would have been lifted up. After being beat within an inch of his life. And we know that the soldiers took his garments before then. And uh, they divided up his garments. And as according to the prophecy of the Old Testament, they cast lots for his clothes as Jesus hung on the cross for those six hours. We know that he was nailed between two others. Uh, we know that there were women that were his followers that were there. We know that John, the apostle, was there to watch. We know at noon, according to the gospel writers, that the, the skies became dark like night. And we know at the end of his, of, at three o'clock, that Jesus cries out, and he dies. And we know that on the temple mount, where the temple was, that the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. And we know that to assure that Jesus had died, the Roman soldiers took a spear. Instead of breaking Jesus' legs, which they did for the other criminals to make sure they had died, they took it, one soldier took a spear and pierced it through his side and pierced his heart and his lungs. John would record that blood and water came out of that. There are seven sayings in the four Gospels of what Jesus said in those six hours. At the start of the time, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Later in the, that day, he said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Later in the day, he looks at John and his mother, and he says, Behold your son, Behold your mother. At the end, he said, I thirst. And then he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And then he cried out, It is finished. And Jesus died at Golgotha. Even though it's not about the cross, but it's about that day, there is one final stop. <laughs> and it was the tomb or what I would put as the garden tomb. When Jesus had died, one of the Sanhedrin, Joseph from a town of Arimathea, who the scripture says was a secret follower of Jesus and did not go along with their scheme. Man, it really bugs me. The Sanhedrin had condemned Jesus to die. You have to believe that Joseph was there. But at the end of that day, Joseph goes to Pilate, the Roman ruler, and asks for the body of Jesus. And he, and according to John's gospel, he and Nicodemus, who had come to him at night in John 3, wrapped the body in linen cloth. The women are there to watch this. And they take the body of Jesus to Joseph's tomb that had never been used he was a wealthy man which was nearby the place of the cross not far and they put the body on the ledge and they rolled a large stone over actually the next day we are told according to the scriptures that the Jewish leaders went to the Roman authorities and said we're afraid his disciples are going to steal his body post a guard there and the, the pilot said you have a guard you posted and we know that guards were posted at the tomb and the door was sealed after the stone had been rolled across the station. 
And then sundown comes, which marked the end of the day. The day in the scripture that we are given more detail than any other day in the 4,100 years that the Bible records. Quite honestly, at the start of this week, as I prepare for this time, I'm thinking, what do I have to say that I've never said about the cross? What is the big picture? What is it? I've preached on the cross many times. I think, what is it? And there were really two things that came to me. And the first was, when Jesus died, it was not a moment of death. It was a day of death. It's one thing to die in an instant. It's another thing to know days and years ahead and to anticipate it, to meet with your followers beforehand and speak to them about what is to happen, and then to be in such mental anguish, to sweat blood in prayer through the night knowing what is coming and to be beaten by the Jewish, abused by the Jewish soldiers, to be beaten within, scourged, beaten within an inch of your life by the Romans, to hang on a cross gasping for breath, to try to sustain your life for six hours. It was not a moment of death. It was a day of death. I don't understand this. It's not just that Jesus died for your sins. I want you to understand today Jesus suffered for your sins and my sins. Here's the second thing. And it answers the question, why? Why of all the days in the scripture is this day given more detail than any other day and this is it the heavenly father wanted you and I to know the price that his son paid for your sin and my sin the heavenly father wanted us to know 2,000 years later this is what it cost my son and I'm not going to put a little one verse statement in the inspired word to say and Jesus died no there was more to it than that the heavenly father wanted you and I today 2,000 years later to listen to the story and I didn't even give you all the detail. I've given you the scriptures on your, your sheet. You can go back and you can read it. The only thing I can surmise is that the Heavenly Father wanted us to know the price His Son paid for my sins and your sins. It was not a moment of death. It was a day of death. And Jesus suffered for our sins. My question to you 
is, what have you done with Jesus who died for you? I think in the story, there were a lot of people that day that were a part of that. There were Jewish leaders. We could even pick out Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus from those. There were the disciples. Only John was there at the cross, though. There were the women that gathered around. There were the Roman soldiers. One of them at the end, according to the Gospels, said, Surely this man was the Son of God. I didn't even tell you. There were earthquakes and there were people that came up from the dead and walked around Jerusalem that day. That's what it says. You can read it. There were some things that happened that day. I've kind of just skimmed over the, the high points. But the two people that strike me, and I believe it gives us a picture today of a decision we have to make, is the man that was crucified to his right and the man that was crucified to his left. I don't know which is which. But all the Gospels, I guess all the Gospels say that there were three that were crucified that day. Jesus was on, in the middle. And it says that they both, along with the people that passed by, mocked and ridiculed Jesus. And at the start of the day, they both mocked Jesus. But at some point, the thief on the cross, as we call him, came to a heart change. And he says... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. He was acknowledging that Jesus was the king. You know, over, over his head, the Romans had nailed the accusation, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. Hebrew, Latin, Greek. That was why he was being crucified, because he claimed to be king of the Jews. And the one man has a heart change and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, assuredly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. As glorious a story as that is of a man coming to faith in Christ at the very end, there's a man on the other side whose heart never turns. And I've always looked at that and I thought, you know, that's where we are. And Jesus, the reason it's recorded in the Gospels is you and I must be confronted with the fact this is what Jesus did. The Father says to pay for my sins and your sin. What will you do with Jesus? You cannot ignore him. It is the Gospel that we preach this is what Jesus did. You may mock him, you may ignore him, you may reject him, you may accept him, but you will have to make a decision. What will I do with Jesus who died for me? And the step that we take, and we will give you opportunity today to do, is to repent of our sins which nailed Jesus there and place our faith in Christ that it was through his broken body and his blood that was shed that is the only payment that the Father will accept as payment for my sin. 
you realize when you bring your righteousness to a heavenly father, you have, you have insulted his son because he gave his son's life to pay for your sins. And when you bring your goodness and your righteousness and say, oh, surely, heavenly father, this is enough, you have shamed his son. That is an insult to God that you would think that your righteousness could get you there. He knew it couldn't get you there. That's why he sent his son to die for you. We must all make a decision about what we will do with Jesus. We repent of our sins and we place our faith in Christ. Just as Allison and Caden have done and testified of that through baptism. We must come to the place where we trust him as our Savior and Lord is the only way of salvation. I, I would imagine that most of you in this room have already taken that step. You're not off the hook this morning <laughs> because the secondary question that comes to me, if Jesus died for you and you have trusted him as your Lord and Savior, does your life Reflect what Jesus did for you? Am I living a life that is worthy of the one who gave his life for me that I might spend eternity with him? I'm going to ask you to stand this morning. Uh, we're going to be at the front. Brother Shane's going to come and lead us. Um, today God's spirit would bring you to the place where you would be willing to repent of your sins and place your faith in Christ I'm going to simply ask that you would come and tell either Byron or I that uh, if you're a Christian and uh, you say man there's some things that I need to get right the altar is open this morning for you to say I want to live a life that's worthy of the one who died for me